0: If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister, this is the word of the Lord. So notice how the phrase the gospel is the operating focus of of the last half of this verse. It is the gospel that they are not to shift from. It is the gospel that they heard, and it is the gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation, and it is the gospel that Paul says he has become a servant of. That's a fascinating idea, to become a servant of a message lifelong. The gospel's the reality. He's saying the Colossians need to keep exercising faith in, that if they stay rooted in it, they'll keep bearing fruit. The gospel's the reason he's writing. The gospel's the reality that produces the hope. The gospel's the thing he wants them not to shift from. And again, the gospel's the thing that he says has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and that he's been um, made a completely sold out, focused servant of. Nothing but the gospel. It's a just fascinating concept, the idea of, I exist to serve the gospel and for nothing else. That's a man who is possessed with a singular purpose. In one place, he says, his life means nothing to him any longer except to testify to the grace of God. That's an expression of the guy saying, I exist, my life, the only reason I'm alive, the only purpose I wake up with every single morning is to express to others the beauty of God's grace. God's grace. Translation, I exist to preach the gospel. I exist to express the gospel. I I exist to serve the gospel and its purposes. What does he mean that the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven? Curious expression, right? The gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. It's been done. He's, he's, He's announcing it finished. It's a completed past action. That's odd. Is that not odd to you? Has the Great Commission been fulfilled? Is the work of evangelism over? If so, when? Who did it? How did it happen? Who didn't? Why didn't you tell me about it? And what about the peoples that in the first century, they didn't even know existed yet? They didn't even know our continent existed, or South America. What about those peoples? How can he say it's been it's done. It's been proclaimed to every creature. And what about the vast, unreached people groups and language groups and cultural ethno groups of the world that still have no viable Christian community, no scriptures in their own language, no local congregations of Christ worshipers? What about them? How can he say this is done? And what about those living in what today missiologists call the 1040 window that, that most uh, mostly Muslim central uh, populations that have almost just a negligible Christian presence, what about them? And if the Great Commission is already finished when Paul wrote Colossians, why did Paul labor so hard to keep on proclaiming the gospel as Romans 15, 20 says, where Christ is not yet known? Remember this? This is one of my favorite verses. About 10 years ago, this verse captured me And it just became like fascinating to me. Paul says, he'd rather not build on another man's foundation. But he'd rather proclaim Christ where his name isn't known yet. I'd rather plant churches rather than serve other people's church plants. Because then you end up, as any builder would know, bumping into other people's way of doing things. And then you end up doing renovation, which is harder than construction. It's funny, renovation takes a skill set, doesn't it? Certain people have a passion for it, to take old things and fix them up and make them beautiful and livable again or restore them to their original purpose. It's quite a different skill set than new construction. And Paul says, I'm built for new construction. I'm not built to renovate someone else's construction. I can do it, but it's odd. I'd rather, I'd rather plant churches where people... Do. That's amazing to me. How many people coming out of congregations saying, I don't want to go where there's Christians already. That's a unique person saying, not, I don't want to go where there's... And I think even like churches, thinking in terms of, well, how many Christians are available that I can draw to my little church? Nobody says that, right? Nobody says, well, I'm here to steal sheep. We just say we're here to serve and take care of the sheep. But when the next church shows up in town and they're the hot new thing and they steal all the sheep, then suddenly you go, oh, I, I now I know what it feels like. But Paul has no grid for any of that American Jesus franchise nonsense. He's thinking, send me to the darkest place. Send me to the place where people hate Christians. Send me to the place where people don't even, never even heard of Jesus yet. Send me to the places where they don't know Jesus at all. That's the fun part. That's where I want to go. I love that guy. And so he's saying that. How can he then say the gospel's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and then also say, I really want to go to the places where he hasn't been heard of yet? And what about the need, of course, then in every new generation? Just because the last generation had vibrant gospel witness doesn't mean the next generation is already reached and trained and discipled and brought into the knowledge, the deep, intimate, real personal knowledge of Jesus. Because we all know the difference between hearing about Jesus and actually knowing Jesus. We all know the difference between growing up in church and actually being the church. We all know the difference, right? Like Keith Green famously said, going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Right, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Although that's a weird thing to say because I don't think anyone ever wanted to become a hamburger, so they became, so they went to McDonald's. But I think a lot of people said, "I'm going to go join with God's people so that I can learn to know Jesus." That makes a little is a funny quote though, and he said it with his high pitched thing. Going to the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to the McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And then he yelled at everyone, called them hypocrites, and told them they were terrible. And everyone loved it. <laughs> it was the weirdest preacher ever. <laughs> you're all hypocrites, you're all going to hell. And everyone was like, I love you, Keith. <clears throat> so how would you answer that question of Paul saying the gospel has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven? What does that mean? Why is he saying that? Any any ideas somebody wants to venture? Andrew in the back, you can talk too, even though you're behind the glass. No, he can't even hear me. Here's my answer, and you can tell me if you think this this makes sense or not. I, I, I obviously do not believe Paul's trying to undermine evangelism. I think what he's trying to say is to these Colossians that have treated the gospel like it's the baby stuff of the Christian life, but the maturity is found in all these other things, he's trying to let them know, no, 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 no. This gospel in one generation... Without an organized missionary effort, without mission agencies, without somebody sitting down and creating a map and and assigning everyone a, a location to go reach, without any of that, on accident, just by people falling in love with Jesus, this gospel is so powerful that it has taken over and transformed lives and spread like wildfire organically And the more people try to stamp it out, the more this gospel's power is confirmed in the transformation of lives and in the witness to the living Christ so that it has taken the known world by storm in one generation. I don't think he's trying to say the work is over. I think he's trying to say in a kind of exaggerated way, this gospel's dramatic and explosive spread should give you guys who are treating it with a little bit of contempt, some pause to reconsider your thinking and get back to it. This gospel, this gospel, this gospel that roots you in the love of God, this gospel that changes lives, this gospel that brings you into the encounter with the living Christ, which is the essence of the faith, Christ in you, the hope of glory, this gospel that is the most important thing in your life and mine, says Paul, this gospel through whom you came to know God and through whom I Became nothing but a servant of this one message for the rest of this one life I've been given. So, what does that curious expression mean? That he became a slave of the gospel. It's a fascinating expression. Whole books have been written about that, just that alone. Whole books. People going, I want to understand what Paul's talking about. For a moment, let's just consider what would it mean for you to devote your life fully to the point where you could use the word slave. What would it mean for you to devote your life fully To the gospel. Now that's a a nuanced phrase, isn't it? Because you could say, well, I, I already devoted my life fully to God. But I think Paul means something unique and slightly different from that when he talks about devoting himself as a slave of the gospel. In Christ, in the body of Christ, each member has a different function. And Paul has a keen and very clear sense of his function in the body of Christ. And so every one of us is supposed to be devoted, I think, to the worship and knowledge of Jesus. I would be comfortable saying every one of us should be also devoted to the gospel but I feel like there's a little nuanced difference between the two. What would it look like to devote your life utterly to a message? It's a curious expression, isn't it? I'm a slave of the gospel. I exist for no other purpose than to testify to the grace of God. What does that mean? I think... For one thing it would mean that your entire life is oriented around that message. Everything before then looks different than everything after then. Your time looks different, your money looks different, your relationships look different, your work looks different, your play looks different. Your understanding of time and eternity is shifted. All considerations, your hobbies look different. All considerations are subjected underneath the ultimate purpose of this gospel being rightly understood, rightly received, and spread among people. This becomes your abiding, uh, uh, decisions are bounced off of what does it do to the spread of the gospel. Does this positively impact the spread of the gospel? Does this positively impact the right understanding and vision of the gospel? Or does this negatively impact the spread and and right reception of the gospel? Strange, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he was not sent to baptize. You remember this? He says, Christ did not send me to baptize. Paul, did you read Matthew 28? Go into all the world, making disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, and surely I'm with you always, to the end of the age. Paul, how can you say Jesus didn't send you to baptize when Romans 6 assumes that every Christian is baptized? Right When he's trying to understand, trying to explain his understanding of the transformation and, the, and the, how the death and resurrection of Jesus are our death and resurrection from sin to life with God, life in Christ, he says, well, you know, it's just like your baptism. But Paul, what if I wasn't baptized? Well, then get baptized now. Because every Christian should be baptized, duh, says Paul. But then how can he say he didn't send me to baptize But to preach, and when the Corinthians are like, oh, I was baptized by Peter, so I'm like super anointed. Oh, I was baptized by Paul. And then you got these dudes that are the older dudes are like, straight up legit, I was baptized by Jesus. What's up? And and Paul's going, oh, and he's rolling his eyes and and like and he's going, dude, I'm really grateful that I didn't baptize any of you and then he goes oh wait well, actually i did there was that one guy and then he's like oh shoot i'd right, fine i remember another guy he misremembers this is interesting right he misremembers right in the bible you can see him in real time correcting his narrative in the bible which is inspired and infallible how's that for a good time oh my bad i forgot so and so and so and so but he's grateful that he didn't baptize more of you guys fascinating he has such a again, there's a nuance here between, here's a nuance between devoted to God and devoted to the gospel. And there's a nuance between the callings in the body where Paul goes, Yeah, 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 yeah. Some people's thing is probably baptism, some people's thing is probably shepherding, some people's thing is probably evangelism. Some let me tell you my thing. I'm here for one thing. Give me the dang microphone. Let me talk about Jesus. Let me open the Bible. Let me talk to you about Jesus. It's all I care about. I'll do it house to house. I'll do it in small groups. I'll do it in big groups. I don't care. I'll do it in the business. I'll do it in the, in, the, in the synagogue. Day and night, that's all I exist to do. I'll do it for free. I'll do it for pay. I don't care. Either way, this gospel has to go forth. It's all I care about. It's all I exist for. I met Jesus on the road. He knocked me off the horse. He blinded me. He told me everything I'd ever done in God's name was backwards and upside down, that I thought I was right, but I was wrong, that I thought I was saved, but I was lost, that I was reading the Bible and I was applying it, thinking that I was helping, but I was harming. He showed me everything was about him. He showed me he's the one I've been seeking. He showed me everything that I'd ever learned in church was backwards and wrong, and now he's here to be the real light. So now for the rest of my life, I'm gonna be more zealous for him than I was before for his law, And trust me, you weren't more zealous for his law than me. So, for the rest of my life, I have one thing I'm going to preach the gospel. If it rains, I'm going to preach the gospel. If I get on a ship and the ship breaks apart and we make it, you know, I grab onto a piece of wood and we make it to shore, guess what I'm doing? As soon as we get there, I'm going to pray for the sick person who lives on the hill. They're going to get healed and I'm going to explain the gospel. If we're collecting firewood and a snake bites me and they go, oh, he's going to die. And I don't die, I'm going to preach the gospel. If I die, I'm in the gospel. If I go into a town and, I, and they want to hear my message and the church forms, I'm going to preach the gospel to that church. And then I'm going to do this wild and crazy thing that most pastors would freak out about. I'm going to leave on purpose and entrust them to God and His grace. I'm going to trust the gospel to change them from the inside out and Holy Spirit can guide them. What? See in a, see in a year or two, maybe. You've been saved three months, you're elders. i got to go preach the gospel to more people. But Paul, you're abandoning your flocks. He rolls his eyes. (laughs) I'm not abandoning them. I'm entrusting them to God and his grace. I believe in the power of the gospel to transform lives, and I don't believe in the power of legalism to curb sin. That's a dead end, and I believe it so strongly I'm able to go, now I have to go do more. I have to reach more. And if they beat him in the face and throw rocks at him and he falls to the ground unconscious, he gets back up and says, well, that was no fun, but I think I saw a dude in the back who wanted it. I'm going back. His, that one guy in the back wasn't throwing rocks. I bet he wants Jesus. And this brother's friend said, Paul, you're killing us. Just leave. When Paul leaves Jerusalem, did you know it says the church enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened in the Holy Spirit? Because he was so aggressive about preaching the gospel, he was just picking fights left and right. Not to pick fights, but just because they need Jesus, they need Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't say they had to get rid of him because he was a jerk. They had to get rid of him because he was like vinegar, you know? Go plant churches. You don't work in Jerusalem. Go where the, go where the Jews don't have people to turn against you. He didn't send me to preach, but to, or to baptize, but to preach. That fascinates me. That's the guy who has no patience for premarital counseling or like, yeah, he didn't send me for that. He sent me to get you in Christ. Well, but six years ago, you were my pastor. Can you come back and do this funeral? Nah, he's in heaven. You don't, he doesn't need me. I'm preaching Jesus to new people. Yeah, but that's wrong. It makes me feel sad and hurt. Tough. He's a weird guy. it's a weird dude, right? Like, he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. It doesn't mean that baptism's not important, but it does put baptism in perspective, doesn't it? If baptism was what saved, he would have changed his tune, wouldn't he? But what saves? It saves for people to rightly relate to Jesus as Lord. That's what saves. Your yes to Jesus, your trust in Jesus, that's what saves, in that instant. And then, of course, get baptized, because it's deeply, richly sacramental and significant, just like your wedding vows are significant. Baptism is your wedding vows. But it's funny to me, they're like, well, baptism is my statement to people. And I'm like, "Mm -mm. mm-mm, read Romans 6, it's not, it's not your statement. Baptism is not your statement of commitment We we all say that. Baptism is the Father grabbing you, connecting you to Jesus in his death and resurrection, and making covenant with you. It's not your covenant with him. It's his covenant with his son being connected to you. You're stepping into his covenant with Jesus in that thing. And Paul says, he didn't send me to do that. I know I'm harping on this. I'm harping on this because in the modern world, I think preaching is viewed as, meh. I think the gospel is almost viewed as, meh. I've seen people stand in, in the pulpit and take 40 minutes of time to talk about Fauci and Bill Gates and coronavirus as though it's a sermon. And all it is is a conspiracy theory based on bad eschatology and they took a they took a half hour or 40 minutes of time to not preach the gospel and then the gospel gets 2 minutes at the end in a little salvation prayer instead of the whole message being Christ Paul says him we proclaim him we proclaim him we proclaim It's crazy, the stuff that we think. Or we think, oh, let's just organize the church into little conversation groups. And that'll be sufficient. If Paul was there, he would have dominated those conversations. You would have hardly got a word in edgewise because he knows he's about to leave. And he knows that you need to hush and learn and that he has special revelation from knowing Christ, that the Holy Spirit's given him an understanding of Jesus. That's not, that doesn't work in the modern world. That wouldn't get viewed as... Meaningful community. Paul says preaching is his main task, and the gospel is his only message. Preaching is his main task. I remember when I first became a pastor, this thing, the postmodern cultural shift was something that my parents' generation was lamenting, and they were right to lament it. It has pretty well taken hold now. We don't call it that anymore. Because uh, when it wins, it's like, what's the point of calling it a boogeyman? And I could talk at great length about the shifts in our culture. But what, what was emerging was called the Emerging Church. How many of you remember this, the Emerging Church? This was like a good decade ago now. And in the Emerging Church, we, they, we were saying things, my generation was saying things like, sermons are outdated, conversations are the wave of the future. And I love conversations. Conversations. I love conversations. I think Paul loved conversations too. Jesus clearly loved conversations. But to seek to replace authoritative, inspired, revelatory proclamation as an edict or an announcement of truth doesn't really work. Preaching for Paul is his main task. So for Paul, the main mechanism of discipleship is preaching. And you go, well, yeah, but what if it's just house to house? Yeah, still preaching. Preaching and teaching. Explanation and testifying, you might call. Here's another strange verse that, under, that helps kind of get, give us a grid for Paul's grasp on the idea that his whole life exists to serve the the. the the spread of and understanding, right reception of the gospel. In Philippians 1, he's in prison and people insincerely start trying to say, Oh yeah, Jesus is Lord, you know, loudly in public to get him to suffer more in prison. It would be like Heckler showing up to falsely represent Christians so we look dumb and they don't believe anything they're saying. They're just trying to get people to not like Christians. How much do you really got to hate a dude to fake being a part of his group, put on the garb of that, and then in public make the whole group look bad? You got to really hate a dude a lot to do that. And Paul says, when he finds out about it, that there are people insincerely claiming Christ to give a bad name to Christians, he says this. Some preach sincerely and some insincerely to cause me harm. But either way, the gospel is preached. So I rejoice. Listen to this. He doesn't care if they make his life harder as long as the name Jesus gets, gets sent forward. He doesn't care if he wins, as long as the gospel wins. He doesn't even care if they are sincere or have integrity. I've seen some things. I've seen some things. I remember going home after being at a mega church and getting on my face before the Lord and saying, I... How can that man be a preacher? With his ego and with his the way he treats people and the way he half his sermon is about him. Half his sermon is basically him bragging about all the stuff he did for God this week. And then he tries to shove people over to prove he's the man of God that has the anointing of God, that everyone needs to come to him. How can he do the things he does? How can he be a preacher? I just was so disgusted with what I saw. But I didn't know why I was so disgusted with what I saw. And so there I was, praying, saying, Lord, what am I, why is this bothering me so much? And the Lord said this. He said, you're bothered because you see your own sin on that stage, full grown. Well, then I didn't make me feel better. That made me feel even worse. It's like, oh, that's your pride if you let it go unchecked. That's your selfishness if you let it go unchecked. And I was like, okay, so now I wasn't just going, Lord, what's wrong with him? Now I was going, you're giving, me a, you're giving me a window into what I could become if I'm unsurrendered to you in the secret place. Gross, help me, Lord. It stopped being about his problems and it started being about our problems. Lord, have mercy on us. And that man, boy, I tell you what, that man preaches the gospel. That man has a powerful church. That man has a fantastic church ministry. God uses him. Jesus has this parable about, he calls it the parable of the wheat, what well, we call it, the parable of the wheat and the tares. So Paul's saying, what does it matter? What does it matter that these people are fake and that they're making my life hard? All that matters is the name Jesus is going forward and, and people are, are finding Jesus. Someone could be not saved but preach the Jesus who does save and others are hungry for Jesus and the Lord will put anointing not necessarily on that person's private life, but on that message about Jesus and that message about Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit will establish those people for God's sake and they can thrive and grow. And Jesus told this story where, you know, he said, this is how it's gonna be on the judgment day. You're gonna have wheat and you're gonna have tares. Tares look just like wheat. Tares look just like wheat until harvest comes. Once harvest comes, the wheat, heavy with kernels, boughs. Let Let the Lord deal with it, says Jesus. When you try to pull up the tares, first off, you don't know the difference. You think you know. God knows the heart. You don't know the heart. You hardly know your own heart. The Lord on Judgment Day will expose the motives of people's hearts. Until then, you're just hoping that your conscience can can serve the Lord with sincerity. You can claim I have a clean conscience, but you can't claim you know you're right for sure. If you do, that's, come on, guys. So as you try to clean up this guy over here, this other, this this guy, I'm going to pull that one out and expose that. First off, you don't know what you think you know. Secondly, as you do that, Jesus says, you will accidentally be pulling out the wheat along with the tares. So leave it until the judgment. That's a fascinating teaching. And I think it's similar to what Paul's saying here. He says, I'm in prison and my life could be a lot harder because of what these fake Christians are doing out there. But what does it matter? What matters is what's happening to the gospel, not what's happening to Paul. What matters is the progress of the gospel, the fame of Jesus, the reputation of Jesus, not the reputation of Paul. He doesn't care if he wins. He doesn't care if they win. All he cares about is, does the gospel win? Because gospel people do gospel things for gospel reasons because they want the gospel to win. He even says this, He says, I have good days and bad days. Some days I preach the gospel. There's days when, he, like in, in the province of Asia, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 talks about how in the province of Asia, it didn't work. People rejected the gospel. The, the, the persecution was harsh. It, it felt like failure after failure. He says, in, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. We wanted to die. We thought death would be an upgrade. He said, we were, we, were, we were pressed beyond our, past, our capacity to endure. That's, that's a good verse. You know those people that say, God will never let you be, God will never give you more than you can handle. And in first, Second Corinthians chapter 1, he says, we were given more than we could handle. But we weren't given more than God can handle. And we were way beyond our depth so that we had to depend on God for comfort and for hope because our hearts didn't have hope to spare. You remember this? But guess what he did? Did he quit? You know better. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, if I if I if I want to preach the gospel and I do it willingly, I get a reward. But if I do it against my own will, because I'm obligated to, then I'm at least doing my duty, and I will preach this gospel. And he says this very strange word, because again, the modern world doesn't talk like this or think like this. He says, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. Do you know what that is? That's an imprecatory proclamation with consequences. This is, my, my cousin Sherry, <laughs> at their wedding, instead of just nice, pretty vows, she put an imprecatory, uh, covenantal curse on herself, if she ever breaks her wedding vows. I said, wow, that's intense. Sherry said, and may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death pre- prevents me from keeping these promises. And I was like, oh, yay, yay. Sherry's read the Old Testament, She doesn't have a fluffy bunny God. She's got a holy God that you fall down before and you say, woe is me, I am undone. That kind of God, a biblical God. And that's what Paul has, a holy God, a biblical God, a fearsome Jesus who does not get mocked. He says, woe unto me if I don't preach the gospel. That's a prophetic, imprecatory, self-proclamation. I have a mandate from the Lord Jesus, the Holy One, to proclaim this gospel, come hell, high water, persecution, or even sword. Cut my arms and legs off. If I have a tongue, I'm preaching. Pull my tongue out, but if I have any ability to wink and make facial expressions in some sort of strange sign language, I'm preaching the gospel. Put me in heaven, what will I do next? I'll pray for the progress of the gospel. He's a man with one purpose. He feels an apocalyptic sense of responsibility before Christ, no matter how his life is going, to not change the topic. No matter, he doesn't let what's going on in his private life change his public message. Don't you, don't do it. Don't let how life's going change your message. Don't do it. He feels an apocalyptic responsibility before Christ no matter how his life is going to preach the gospel come hell or high water, no matter if it brings amens and revivals and a church gets planted or he gets his butt handed to him and beat with rocks and shouts of, get him out of here. Either way, he's going to preach the gospel. You can maybe shut him up today, but you can't shut him up tomorrow. And you can maybe kick him out of here, but you can't kick him out of the next place very well. You know what's crazy is they did. You know how much they hated him? They made a vow that they wouldn't eat or drink until he was dead. That's like when you're playing a video game and it like unlocks an achievement and there's like ping and then there's a star and it says a thousand points, achievement unlocked. When you reach that level, oh, uh, no one else thinks that's great? I think that's great. Like, there's probably some twisted kid somewhere that's like, "Ah, oh, Lord, I hope I have a group of people that fast and pray that they could kill me. <laughs> I want to love you so much. That's how people feel about me. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want that personally. I would like a milkshake and a nap. That's what I want. Okay. <laughs> Sonic is right. No, don't product placement in a sermon. It's bad. I've noticed that if I say if I I say a restaurant or something, people are like, "I want that now," and they like make a beeline right after church. (laughs) I know strawberry milkshake, baby, with a cherry on top. Oh boy, he's going to preach the gospel. He's going to preach this gospel. If if he gets raised from the dead, guess what he's going to do? He's going to preach this gospel. And you might think that it's not necessary to preach this gospel in heaven, but I, but I bet you right now, if you show up and you go, hey, Paul, he's going to leak on you. He's overflowing still. He's got more stuff to say about the goodness of Jesus right now, because somehow we got it in our thick skulls that, like, the, the only reason to preach the gospel is to, is to get people saved, and as though we'd stop talking about it once everyone got saved, which is dumb, Preaching is worship, and unless God stops being worthy, we should keep on declaring how worthy he is, because if if you proclaim him rightly, it causes hearts to fall in love with him, and want to seek him, and want to surrender to him, want to know him. We've had this really weird two-dimensional vision of the Christian life. It's like, you want to get saved? Why? So you can not burn forever. Well, that sounds bad. Let me probably go with that one. Then you get here and you go, well, now what are we going to do? We're going to sing. Why? To get all riled up so we can go out there and tell other people that they don't want to burn in hell. And I'm like, guys, what are we saved for? Evangelism? No. That That would imply that Adam and Eve in the garden had no reason to live and that in heaven we'll have nothing to live for. And then we do another dumb thing and we think worship is singing, which makes like most people not really think heaven's going to be great. And like Christianity then becomes like a list of rules, stuff not to do so you don't burn, and a list of duties, stuff to do so that you can be the ones helping others not burn and so we can go to heaven and not burn. Well, what are we doing there? Well, we're going to stand around and we're going to sing. Uh, Martin Smith and the band Delirious is going to lead us in I Could Sing of Your Love Forever for a while. It's going to suck. No. No, what if, what, if, what if we were made for work, relationships, with a God who liked to work with us? What if Jesus for 30 years was living the purpose of what the rest of us would be redeemed into? What if his family life was the model for the normal Christian life? just as much as his spirit-filled mission life was also a model. So whether revival falls or he gets beat with rocks and kicked out of town, it changes nothing. I mean, it does affect him emotionally, but it doesn't change his purpose. I want you to get to the place where when you're together with your friends or your spouse and, and, and someone is like, the cost is too high, that the other one says, stop that. We will not betray Jesus. I want you to get to that place where you say, no matter what's next, it's going to be Jesus. It's going to be for the gospel.